brought a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 3. That's where we're going to spend our time today. If you didn't bring a Bible and you want to follow along, there are several on the table in the back of the room. Feel free to grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, please keep one of those. It's our gift to you. But John chapter 3 is where we'll spend our time today. And just as a heads up to those of you who are following along in our reading plan, uh, we're not going to have time to get all the way through John chapter 3, and so you're going to have a little bit of studying to do on your own this week. But as always, if you run into something hard or, or uh, something you don't understand, we are a, a phone call or an email away. We'd love to talk more about the scriptures with you anytime. So uh, John chapter 3, just a quick recap, though, uh, from last week. In chapter 2 of John's gospel, we read that Jesus and his disciples traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover. And uh, it wasn't just them. Thousands of people were coming into the city to celebrate Passover, these travelers coming from all over the place. But when Jesus got to the temple, he saw that uh, people were taking advantage of these travelers. They had set up booths where they were selling uh, the required sacrificial animals for a highly inflated price. And there were money changers there because you couldn't just pay for those animals with your own money. You had to use special temple money. And so they had set up an exchange rate that was completely unfair to the travelers, just completely ripping these people off. Jesus sees this, and the scriptures say he is filled with zeal for his father's house. And so he makes a whip, and he drove out the money changers. He drove out those who are selling these animals, and he says, my father's house will be a place of prayer, not a den of thieves and robbers. And so that's where uh, I actually want to pick up the story right at the end of chapter 2, because John includes an important detail there in verse 23. Here's what, what he writes. John says, now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Well, one of the people who saw those signs that Jesus was performing was a man by the name of Nicodemus. And that's who we're going to read about today in John chapter 3. And so we've got chapter divisions and verse numbers and all of that in our scriptures. Just understand that in the original text, what we see is chapter 2 and chapter 3. It just flows together as one story. So Nicodemus has seen what happened at the temple, and now we come to what is for us, chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now let's pause right there because John has already given us some really important information about this man, Nicodemus. In verse 1, we're told that he is a Pharisee. And that word Pharisee literally means separated one. That's what the Pharisees did. They separated themselves from the rest of society in order to, to live a life in which they kept every detail of the law. And William Barclay points out in his commentary, there were never more than 6,000 Pharisees in all of Israel. So this was a somewhat elite, somewhat prestigious group in Jesus's day. And if you read through the Bible with us last year, you know that the Pharisees were often the subject of Jesus's rebuke. 
because they were known for their meticulous law-keeping, but Jesus always had this way of looking at their hearts and calling them to account. We shouldn't assume, however, that just because Nicodemus is a Pharisee that he is going to be the villain of the story. We should just recognize that this is, a, this is an elite member of society, uh, that he had devoted his life to knowing and following God's laws. But then John goes on to tell us that not only is Nicodemus a Pharisee, but he's also a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, this is a group that's known as the Sanhedrin, and most likely John is referencing uh, the group that was known as the Great Sanhedrin. This was a group of no more than 70 men who sat together and and, uh, made decisions on behalf of the nation of Israel. Now, to understand how the Sanhedrin works, we might compare it with our local uh, or our modern-day courts, okay? We have local courts, we have state courts, and on and on, on up to the Supreme Court. Well, that was true for Sanhedrins as well. You had what uh, Nicodemus is likely a part of, the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, but there were these other uh, localized Sanhedrins of fewer men out and around in the different communities. But when we think about the great Sanhedrin, uh, it, it wouldn't be unlike our modern-day Supreme Court. They were the supreme religious, legislative, and educational council of the Jews. And just as a side note, it was the great Sanhedrin that brought the charges against Jesus, which would ultimately lead to his crucifixion. And Nicodemus is a part of this group. So I hope you're starting to see that Nicodemus was no ordinary guy. He, he was a man of power. He was a man of very high position, well-respected, likely very affluent. And uh, he was a model for all of Israel of what a good Jew should look like. But in verse 2, John also tells us that Nicodemus has come to Jesus under the cover of night. And he tells Jesus that he believes no one could do the things that Jesus was doing if God wasn't with him. So he makes a a statement of belief there to Jesus. And Jesus responds in a curious way in verse 3. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now that's an interesting phrase because in the Greek, the word that's translated in English as again is the word anothen. And it can actually mean three different things. It can mean, again, the way that we understand it, like for the second time, but it can also mean from the beginning, completely and radically. Or thirdly, it can mean from above and therefore from God. Anathen can mean any or all of these things. But Nicodemus's response in verse 4 tells us that he assumes Jesus meant it only in the first sense. Look at what he says in verse 4. Nicodemus responds, How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, isn't that strange? Nicodemus is a a well-educated man. He knew the Greek language. He he knew that there were multiple uh, ways to interpret what Jesus says. Why would he assume that Jesus is referring to re-entering the womb. Why, why would he focus in on the most unlikely and certainly the weirdest thing that Jesus could have possibly meant? Well, is it possible that Nicodemus would not allow himself to consider the other two options? If we put those definitions on the screen again and, 
and you think about the, the second one from the beginning, completely, radically, and you think about the fact that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, well, what kind of radical change could he possibly need? I mean, he had devoted his entire life to following God's law. So, so how could that possibly be it? Or if you think about the third definition, why would he need to be born from above or born from God? That doesn't make any sense because Nicodemus has already been born into God's chosen people group, the nation of Israel. Why in the world would that be necessary for him? And so he focuses on this nonsense about re-entering his mother's womb But what Jesus wanted him to see is that even for this model citizen of God's chosen people, what's actually necessary to enter the kingdom of God is such a complete and radical change in a man's inner life that it can only be described as new birth. Listen to what David Guzak writes about this in his commentary. He says, Jesus' reply to Nicodemus shattered the Jewish Jewish assumption that their racial identity, that is their old birth, assured them a place in God's kingdom. Jesus made it plain that a man's first birth does not assure him of the kingdom. Only being born again gives this assurance. Now, we talked about this a little bit several weeks ago when we looked at John chapter 1, specifically verses 11 through 13, where talking about Jesus, John says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Right? So who, who were Jesus' own? Well, humanity, for sure. But if, if we're even more specific, the Jewish people. Jesus came unto the Jewish people. He's born into that, Jewish, uh, that group of people. But they did not receive him. They largely rejected him. But in verse 12, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now pay attention to this next line. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. This is the point. We must be born of God. The point is, this new birth is not something we can produce on our own. It only comes from above. It only comes from God. It doesn't matter if you're from a good family or from a bad family. It doesn't matter if you've done a bunch of good stuff or a bunch of bad stuff. It doesn't matter if you go to church every Sunday and Bible study every Wednesday and say the Lord's Prayer seven times a day, seven days a week. Those are all good things, but we have to recognize that while good things will always be a product of the new birth, those good things cannot in and of themselves produce the new birth. Only one thing leads to being born again, and it's described in verse 12 as believing and receiving. We have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he is who he said he was, and receive his free gifts of forgiveness and righteousness in our hearts by putting our faith in him. And this goes against everything Nicodemus has ever thought or believed about what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus continues explaining in verse 5, and he says, Very truly I tell you, Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Now, we're going to look at what that means to be born of water and the spirit. But before we get there, there's actually a clue just a little farther ahead in the text. Okay, And I want to show it to you so that we can interpret this well. 
So Jesus is still explaining things to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is still confused, and he says in verse 9, Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can this be? How can this be? And look at what Jesus says to him. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Now, why does Jesus bring up the fact that Nicodemus is Israel's teacher? Why is that important? Well, when you think about what Nicodemus taught, it was the Old Testament, right? It was all of the the law and the prophets and the history and the poetry. Nicodemus was an expert on all of it. And whatever Jesus means by being born again and, and being born of water and of the Spirit, he expected Nicodemus to understand it in light of the Old Testament. He says, you're the teacher. Don't you understand these things? So with that context, let's consider what Jesus might have meant when he talks about being born of water. There's not much debate on the uh, born of the spirit part of that comment, but let me tell you how some have interpreted the water part. Some have thought that born of water simply refers to physical birth. And you likely know that, uh, that before a woman gives birth, uh, something happens that we refer to as her water breaking, right? And the baby comes forth after the water breaks. And so some believe that what Jesus had in mind here when he used the phrase born of water is simply physical birth, okay? And that approach does complement what Jesus says next. We see that he says, flesh gives birth to flesh, born of water, but the spirit gives birth to spirit, born of the spirit. So that's one approach, Others believe that born of water refers to baptism. And the act of baptism certainly was known to Nicodemus and to all of the Jewish people. It was part of the ceremony that would have been performed when a a Gentile or a pagan wanted to uh, convert to Judaism. There was this ceremony they would go through, and baptism was, was part of that ceremony. Along with that, it was also, baptism was also being practiced by John the Baptist. And uh, he seemed to be giving baptism a new meaning, and Nicodemus would have certainly been familiar with this. And so baptism is another possibility of what Jesus meant when he said we must be born of water. But there's still another option, and I think it's the one most likely in the context of what Jesus said to Nicodemus in verse 10, that you're the teacher. Uh, His understanding is teaching of the Old Testament. Again, the two images are born of water and born of the Spirit. And nearly 600 years before this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus, the prophet Ezekiel prophesied these words from Ezekiel 36. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now Nicodemus knew this passage. He knew that Ezekiel had used water as a reference to cleansing and inner cleansing from idolatry and from impurity. He knew that God had promised a new heart and a new spirit, that God had said he would put his Holy Spirit inside of men and that the Holy Spirit would move us and help us toward obedience to God. And so I believe that when Jesus tells Nicodemus that no one can see the kingdom of heaven except that they be born of water and of the Spirit, that that he's talking about the fulfillment of this Ezekiel prophecy. 
He's talking about an act of God to cleanse and to renew and to fill with his Holy Spirit those who believe and receive the Son of God. Leon Morris summed it up this way. He said, These solemn words forever exclude the possibility of salvation by human merit. Man's nature is so gripped by sin that an activity of the very Spirit of God is a necessity if he is to be associated with God's kingdom. And I think Jesus could see the look on Nicodemus's face. He, he could see the shock. He could see the confusion. The thought for most Jews would have been, we, we already have everything we need to access the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus is telling Nicodemus now, you don't have it. You don't even seem to understand it. You must be born again. And, and listen, Jesus is so patient with him. He just keeps explaining and, and keeps giving him illustrations. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is essentially saying, Nicodemus, you, like, you can't see the wind, but you don't deny that it's there. You, you can hear it. You can see its effect all around you. That's how it is with those who are born of the Spirit. The water that Ezekiel talked about represented cleansing, but it, it's not a cleansing of the outside that you would see. It's a cleansing and a purification of the inside. It, it's a new heart on the inside and a new spirit on the inside. And you don't see these things, but you see the effect of the new birth in a person's life as they begin to produce the fruit of the spirit, and love and joy and peace and so on. But Nicodemus is confused, and this is where he turns to Jesus, and he just says, how can this be? And I don't think we should read into the text that he was resistant to these things, but his head is just spinning. And so Jesus gives him one more illustration to help him understand. Jump down to verse 14. Jesus tells Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So Jesus, speaking to this Old Testament teacher, draws on the Old Testament one more time to help him understand. He recounts a story from Numbers 21. If you want to look at it later, write that down, Numbers 21. And it's a story of a time in Israel's history when the people were sinning against God. And so God responds by sending a plague of venomous snakes. And the snakes are biting the people, and the people are dying of these snake bites. The text actually refers to them as fiery serpents. And most people believe that that descriptor uh, is really about what was happening in the people's body once they got bit. Just excruciating, fiery pain. It was a, a painful death. And Tim Keller uh, points out that the venom represented the sin in the people's lives. He says it represented in their bodies what was killing them in their souls. And so ultimately, the people realized it was their own sin that was causing this to happen. And so they repented. They asked Moses to pray that God would save them. And I want you to see how God responds in Numbers 21, verse 8. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And that's exactly what Moses did. He, he made a, a serpent out of bronze, an image of the very thing that was killing the people. And he put it on a pole and, and he put it up where everyone could see it. And, 
And all the Israelites had to do when they were bitten was to look at that image of the thing that was killing them, to look at that image of the serpent, and then they would be healed. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus was talking about his own crucifixion. He was looking ahead to the day when he would offer his perfectly righteous life to pay for the sins of the world. See, the account in Numbers 21 was really just a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do for the entire world. Jesus himself is the greater Moses. Jesus himself would be lifted up on a pole, a wooden cross for all to see. And just as the bronze snake represented what was killing the people, so would Jesus become a representative of your sin and mine. And only by looking in faith to him can we escape the penalty of sin, eternal death. Only by believing and receiving and thus being born again can men enter the kingdom of God. It's the only way. And this is what Jesus wanted Nicodemus to see. This is what he so desperately wanted Nicodemus to grasp. But that's where the conversation ends. And I'm guessing Nicodemus spent the rest of that night trying to render what Jesus had said, trying to reconcile it with everything he thought was true. See, Nicodemus the Pharisee had spent his entire life believing that since he was a good person from a good family, from the the right nation, that he was accepted by God. And still today, there are a lot of people who believe that if I'm a good person, or at least if I do enough good to outweigh the bad, then God will love me, and he'll accept me, and he'll allow me to be a part of his kingdom. But that belief is in direct conflict with the message of Jesus. In the book of Romans, Paul addresses this issue head on. In Romans chapter 3, verse 22, Paul says, We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. He goes on in verse 27 to say, can we boast then? Can we boast that that we've done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. And listen, if anyone had reason to boast, it was Nicodemus, right? He's a Pharisee. He's dedicated his whole life to to following the law. He's part of the Sanhedrin, this elite group of the leaders of Israel. He was born into the, the chosen people of God, but in the end, none of that made him right with God. And then just to make sure we don't miss it, John added some more commentary to wrap up the Nicodemus story. And you're likely familiar with the first part of it. Here's what he wrote in John 3, 16 through 18. John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Folks, this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus. And it was good news for Nicodemus, and it's good news for you and for me. And at the core of the gospel is this simple truth. 
that God accepts you because of what he did for you, not because of what you did for him. God accepts you because of what he did for you, not because of what you do for him. It's what makes the gospel so different and so beautiful. Do you realize that every other major world religion says the exact opposite of that? Every other major world religion, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and a number of others, in all of them, it's about your good performance. It's about your good works. That's how you're accepted. That's how you move forward. And so you have to try harder, do better, you know, do more, and hope that at the end of your life, you are good enough. And the world has totally bought into this. The world says that the way to acceptance is, is through good performance. And so if you perform well, if you're strong and you're successful, then you're welcomed and invited in. And, and so we try really hard to earn acceptance. Kids try to earn their parents' acceptance. Peers try to earn their peers' acceptance. We try to earn our employer's acceptance. We try really hard to hide our imperfections and to hide our failures at all costs. This is the way of the world. But the gospel turns this thinking on its head and says, no, God accepts you based on what he did for you, not on what you do for him. And so maybe you've never put your faith in Christ, but you're kind of like Nicodemus and, and you've, you've heard enough and, and you've seen enough that you're exploring and, and maybe the, you know, you're hearing this about the gospel, but it's, it's just still really not making sense and you've got some, some questions. Please hear me when I tell you this morning. It's not complicated, but it is completely different than what the world will tell you. Completely and radically different. You don't have to do more. You don't have to act different. You don't have to be better. Those things come later. All you have to do is be born, to be born again is to look in faith to Jesus. That's it. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Just look to him. He has done everything necessary to secure your salvation. You just look to him. He will heal the deadly bite of sin in your life. When you look at him, the very moment you put your faith in Jesus, you will be born again, born from above, born of God. He will put his Holy Spirit inside of you who will empower you to live the kind of obedient life that God desires from you. John says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's the good news. But he goes on to say, Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Listen to me. If you refuse to look to Jesus in faith, it is not going to go well for you on the day when you have to give an account for your life. When you stand before the Lord and you show him all of your good works, it will not be enough. That's why John says, that for those who have not put their belief in him, they stand condemned already. It is, the, it is the current condition of every human apart from Christ. Condemned, judged, and found lacking. But whoever believes in him is not condemned because God will see the good works of Jesus credited to you. He's not looking for your good works. He's looking at the perfect work of his son, Jesus Christ, credited to you by faith. 
And he will accept you, not because of what you did for him, but because of what he did for you. And so I'm asking you this morning, are you ready? Are you ready? If you have never received the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, are you ready today? I want to invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads with me because you can do this today. It starts with confession. And uh, if you're ready to put your faith in Christ, I'm going to lead you through a simple prayer. And I want you to know this prayer, these are not like magic words. Okay, this has to come from a heart that is surrendered, a heart that is ready to, to receive Christ in faith. But you can just pray a simple prayer to God like this. Just say, Father, I recognize that I have sinned against you. And I know there is no amount of good that I can do to make things right. But I believe that Jesus Christ is your son and the savior I need. Please forgive me now as I put all of my faith in him. And thank you for saving me. Lord, I want to pray this morning for those who may have just prayed that prayer for the very first time. I thank you for their faith, and I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you that when we cry out to you, that you hear us and you respond. Thank you for that, Lord. I also pray uh, for those of us in the room who put our faith in you some time ago, Lord. And I pray that, that we would not be drawn back to putting our, our faith or our hope in our own good works or somehow trying to, to add that on to what you have already done for us, Lord. You accept us not because of what we do for you, but because of what you have already done for us. And our good works are not to earn your love, Father. Our good works are because of your love. And we want to be faithful to them because we want to live lives that please you. And your word says that you will empower us by your Holy Spirit to do just that. And so we invite that this morning. Lord, we invite it. We are watching. We are listening for the move of your spirit so that we can live faithful and fruitful lives before you. And I pray all of this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to know if you prayed that prayer of faith for the first time this morning, uh, first of all, welcome to the family of God. Second of all, that is not something that's meant to be done in secret. And so your next step is to tell someone. I'll be up front after the service. I think Steve will be with me. Grab one of us. Maybe somebody brought you who is already a believer in Christ. Tell them we want to walk alongside you in this journey of faith.